What's up? It's Lukey. I'm still on the road. I haven't been home yet. So since you last saw me podcast, I've just been away from where I normally do it. 13 days now. Feels like a hostage situation. I will tell the once you get away from your house for that long, it's a little different. But Dakota, how are you living this week? I'm doing all right. Fortunately, I uh, get to be at my own home, but I definitely know the feeling of being on the road long enough that it's like, all right, let's wrap yeah, this it's up. Like, it's like, hey, and man, it, can, I, can, I, can, can I get back there soon enough? It's not even like there's anything to do there. It's just I like a routine at the house, you know, walk here, go there. Um, let's start with the big one, right? That's Edgar Berlanga. Um, he looked every bit of what people once believed he was. I, I was thinking about this and let's start here because I think this is possibly a talking point and it's possibly something others won't talk about. So it's a good point for Lukey and Dakota nerd out over his career is kind of mirroring Jaime Munguia to me. And I think you brought this up, but 16 first round knockouts is incredible. Then he kind of hits a rough spatch where he has to go the rounds. He's maybe life is getting in the way, etc. But he's having these developmental fights where I think he went from overrated to underrated. And in this fight, I have no terms of assessing McCroy. I had heard he was good. He looked like he offered some professional resistance. That being said, there's variables. Mark, uh, Mark Frott is now his coach, second camp. You all know coaches get better with their second camp with a fighter. Angel Memo Heredia is the strength coach. Did Angel help with this? Or is it just Berlanga developing on his own? There's variables. But I do start to see Berlanga falling into this category of a very good fighter who I think people are overrating based on the stardom and the ticket selling. Dakota, what did you see from last night's performance with Berlanga? Well, yeah, bro. I mean, I definitely felt like starting in maybe maybe the end of the second or the third round when he started getting that jab going regularly and he was just a little more fluid with his offense. Um, and it was nice to see that, bro. I feel like he's just his offense has been really tight the last couple of fights. There's been all these moments where I want to see him let his hands go and just let loose a little bit. And he generally just hasn't in the last couple of fights. This one, he got himself rolling. You could see he started to get a little rhythm. He started to get his timing. McCrory was obviously feeling the power, and then Berlanga was able to stop him. I think the only thing for me was just I don't I, I didn't like how long it's taken him to get started. Like I understand the getting a look thing, but I feel like when you're in with a better guy, you got to start planting those seeds. You can't just look. You know what I mean? And I feel like a, a better fighter is going to take those rounds to get momentum. But I, I, I like the direction it's taken. It reminded me of a very Arthur Abraham performance. And I think that might be his ceiling right now is there's a level of guy that's never going to let him get off if this is who he's going to be. And there's a level of guy where he's going to land something big and win. Yeah, definitely. I, I think, But I think the upside on him is he does have really fast hands and he throws fluid combinations when on the occasions that we've seen him get into that kind of rhythm. So I do think there's a level of explosiveness that somebody like Abraham probably didn't have with that. He just sort of used his brute strength where I think Edgar has some of that. And so I think that that's, that's what he can, he can build on. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, I was watching last night, obviously. And um, one of the big things is the entourage 
you know, the guys that conduct themselves as a star when they're in a main event. And there is a level of this guy is a star to Berlanga. I think the issue people have had is when you conduct yourself as a star, but the performances don't match the stardom you you act with, that can be the problem. I'd say this is his first performance since his knockout streak where you go, okay, there's some substance to the stardom. Definitely. And that's right. That's been the disconnect is superstar athlete and elite boxer are not always the same thing, particularly in boxing. Right. So I think we've all been trying to figure out where he stacks up in, in that way of analyzing him. And if we're going to be real and we are, we do keep it real. These past couple of years, we've been that's all we can do. These past couple of years, we've been waiting on a stoppage. We've been waiting on a stoppage, and it feels like they brought in opponents who shouldn't quite be on his level, who he should can be. I, can I tell you something, though? I haven't even been waiting on a stoppage. I've just been waiting to see more of an identity. And I felt like against Rolls and get, at times against Quigley, where he just sort of lets time pass him by, I think those are the types of things. Like, I don't need a knockout. Andy Cruz didn't get a knockout, but I felt like he did everything he could to push the action and push – you know what he was trying to do and we've just seen these long periods of time where it's i feel like edgar's just been caught watching and what was better about this fight wasn't even just the knockout it was that he didn't he wasn't waiting as much yeah i mean with this fight to me well i guess i'm gonna answer a question with a question what is berlanga's identity to you i think that he can be the kind of guy I think he can be a triple G type. I think he can be an aggressive power puncher that has good defense and good boxing skills. And I think that he has a fantastic jab, and it's just a matter of him getting it out there consistently enough with the foot pressure to, to bother guys. And I think that we saw – again, I don't I know enough about McCrory to use him as a metric, but I think that that can be Edgar's identity. I mean, he was good enough to get the fight, and we can't do this thing where he was a cl- he was closer in terms of odds than Nova was to shock. So to do this against a guy that the odds makers say this could be a fight, he has to get credit. Like we just can't play both sides. Like going in, this felt like this could be a tricky fight for him. He has a great performance. We can't the next day go, oh man, he's overrated. This guy, like that just, we can't, we have to set lines and just understand this was a fight that people thought he could look bad in and he performed to what we wanted to see of a star. Yeah. And I, I, but for the record, I wasn't saying that. I was more so just saying, I don't know enough about him to use him as a metric, but I, you know, like, then that was the issue before the fight, right? It's like, I don't really know what we, what he's getting into here. Berlanga Canelo. How do you like this ongoing storyline that's now being followed? I don't really fuck with it, bro. Like, I just feel like if we were really a sport, Munguia and Berlanga would be kind of like the no-brainer of the moment. They're both with the same promoter, I'm pretty sure, or they're both on the same network, and so the fight would be makeable. I don't understand why, if it's like the... Let, let's, for a moment, put Benavidez and Morel aside because that's a whole other conversation. But in theory, let's say the number two and three guys want to fight the number one guy the best way to earn that would be to fight each other not to compare performances against the the back half of the top 10 so i just that's the fight that i'm interested in seeing 
Yeah, I mean, I think I I like that fight more because it's like two guys looking in the mirror. It's two guys looking at themselves. Right. right. And the and the and the winner of that fight, I think, is a genuinely compelling Canelo opponent. Oh, well, the winner is a guy. You know, they're right. they're a figure in the sport. They're a talking point. You know. Yep. And I think that Pauli Malignaggi said this on Pro Box and Boxing Scene this week, and it's a great point. There's too many undefeated fighters. You look down these top 10 lists and there's too many guys with un, unblemished records because there's too many promoters. There's too many managers, too many people protecting fighters. And I think at a high level, this is a case where we're looking at Munguia and Berlanga, two guys who have good records, who sit in a similar spot, but we just feel as though they're going to be moved away from each other. And But that's the kind of fight I'm interested in seeing Berlanga in just because we haven't seen it, right? Like I would love to see him run it with Caleb Plant. I want to get a gauge on what his skill level is. You know what I mean? And if he doesn't got it like that, I think Caleb will make him look silly. But that's the, those are the kinds of fights I'm interested in seeing. I mean, Caleb Plant, Jaime Munguia, top-level guys, but I'm not sure I'm as interested at the moment in Canelo or even in Benavidez or Morel just because I don't we don't we don't have the fights to to stack up. Okay. Let's get into what I wanted to talk about now. You ready? I'm sure. I'm a big Andy Cruz guy. First fight I wasn't. Yeah, there I am some, too, bro. You there's know, some you know weird, there's some hot takes on him. And I wanted to go on a rant here because there's the school of thought of Luki in Dakota where I'm seeing a guy who turned pro in a 10-round fight. He's weaponizing his talent. He's nonstop. A pre- he's a pressure fighter who's nonstop, but he's defensively sound. And he never lets guys rest. He's not just defensively sound. He's almost fucking impossible to hit. With fast. Like, he's one of the most perfect fighters I've seen in a long time, right? So that being said, why don't I get your perspective and then I'll say my piece. Dude, I mean, I think he's tremendous, bro. I think it's just a matter of moving him up to just check the boxes and make sure he's ready to go. But as far as I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure what weight he's fighting at. I feel like he's fought at both 140 and 135. But I feel like, you know, whenever he's ready to take that leap, he's ready, bro, because he's he's got that skill set. He's got the not like like you said, not just defensively sound like a Golovkin. He's like a defensive wizard where it's very difficult to catch him clean with much of anything. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm sold. Well, here's my take, right? He's turning, pro, uh, he's turning pro in 10-round fights. He's fighting ex-world champions. He's fighting guys that are known to give you guys tough fights. He hasn't really lost a round. He's looking fantastic. And I get some people say, oh, he doesn't have power. The standard of greatness we are holding Andy Cruz well, but who says, who says he doesn't have power, Luki? People on the internet, bro. People on the internet are saying, "Oh, I don't know if he has power." I know I'm sure they don't have power either. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't want to stand in front of him and just let him tee off on me. Is what I'm saying. But I don't know if I'd let anyone do that. But what I'm saying about him is, let's just talk through the facts. Three fights, ten rounds each, top level competition. If he was doing six round fights and getting second round stoppages, people would say, "Why isn't he stepping his competition up?" So the, the criticism for Andy Cruz is some of the most unreasonable I've ever seen because we are looking at a guy who's trying to bypass the contender spot altogether and jump right into the top of the food chain. And because of that, there I think what it really is is 
their boxing is a niche sport and it has some contrarians, right? Because it's a little bit, people tend to be like the boxing fan to their friends, right? I'm boxing guy. Let me explain. And I think there's a certain type of personality that wants to go against the grain. And a guy like Andy Cruz is a guy that I think some people are going to be like, let me go against the grain. I'm not sure how he stacks up to me. This is like a David Morrell type fighter. This is a guy who's very exciting. He's very polished. And the scariest thing I saw last night was he's going to get better. Like this is the worst version of him as a pro. And that was the scary thing to me is he's a top 15 lightweight as basically he's learning how to be a pro and he's a top 15 guy. Yeah. And I think the, the taking the the mix of having those Cuban skills in that, that foundation and putting that into the Philly gym and doing the sparring with boots Ennis and just being in that kind of environment. It, I, he's a, he's just a lot to handle, bro. He is a lot to handle. And if you, if you don't like his power, that's fine, bro. But whoever you want to put him in there with, I guarantee you he's in the mix. That's just, that, that, that's my instinct on him. And cause the guy he's, the guy he fought last night had a, a lot of heart too. And I know everyone wants to pretend like they don't have an opponent in there, but the opponent didn't want to quit in this fight. The opponent was throwing until the last bell and you have to give him credit for that as well. You know, like you said, if he was getting second round knockouts and six round fights, we'd go, why don't he step it up? This guy was, I would have been cool with them stopping it after the sixth round, you know? Well, he fought a guy where the fight became the Super Bowl of his life. And the Super Bowl was, I'm not going to get stopped by this amazing fighter. And it's really hard to fight a guy when the guy makes a decision. I'm not going to get stopped and I'm tough as hell. And I'm not going to look for a way out. Like when a guy doesn't have quit in him and they have a chin and they're willing to tough it out. Those are some of the hardest guys to ever stop. And they're moving backwards. You know, he he wasn't on the front foot himself. He was trying to, you know, when he had moments to throw little answers to what Andy was doing. But Andy Andy just controls the ring, man. Yeah, I mean, he's he's something else. He's something else. How fast do you how fast do you do it, Lukey? How fast do you how fast? I mean, do you... to me, it's just like I'm looking at this guy who should really be like the fourth fight on the card. He's the co-main event. He's in a 10-round fight that's a very interesting fight. And it if I'll say it for what I think it is. I think the problem with someone as good as Andy Cruz is he deserves to be on television, but fans don't know how to watch a fighter who's not ready for championship fights on television. So he's being assessed like he's a world champion when he's really a prospect, but he's one of the best prospects we've seen in the last 20 years since like Lomachenko and all these guys. And because people don't watch the developmental undercards and they don't assess what prospects look like, he's being held to a world championship standard, which I think even as a prospect, he's still in that conversation, but it's a rather unfair conversation to have with a guy given the amount of fights he's had. But to me, there's just certain guys that are different in the way that they're fighting warrants a different sort like Lomachenko warranted that different treatment. You know, and being one and one and beating Gary Russell, like there's just I feel like he's getting into that kind of conversation where it's like, yeah, I do want to see him and Keyshawn fight in the pros. I'm into that right now, bro. Well, the thing I also like about Andy Cruz, the guys that went over my heart in boxing, 
guys I know that won't say no to fights. And I just get the sense that it's hard to match this guy. Nobody's taking fights with him is the sense I'm getting. And you're finding the most rugged and tough guys who are willing to fight anybody that are willing to step up. And it's going to take the, it's going to take a sanction. Look, all of his fights are for secondary world titles. What does that tell me? They're trying to force a mandatory rather quick. They're trying to get ranked in the top of the rankings. They're trying to force guys in those rankings to take fights because I think the belief is they don't think guys are going to fight Andy Cruz. They have to force the sanctioning bodies to make the fights happen. It's not a bad strategy, you know. Somebody like him, he, that's how he's going to build his name is in, is in sort of traditional means, right, traditional rankings and stuff. He's not going to be a social media sensation. But I also do think he has like a an, an entertainment factor. Like I think he's entertaining to watch. I think the fact that he's a character in the ring walks and he's relaxed, like I, I enjoy everything about what he's bringing. So I – for me, it's hard to see what there is to criticize other than if you're just a fan that, you know, if you don't get first round knockouts, I'm not interested, you know? Well, I think, I think for me being around him, the thing that was most interesting was how macho he is. Like he does that dance, but it's like this dance, like I'm going to beat you up so bad that I'm going to do the goofiest dance. Yeah. He's like one of the most macho fighters I've ever seen. And he's like, so confident it could be taken as arrogance and it, he's compelling and i thought that that was a real missed opportunity was to not tell some of his backstory and to focus on maybe an entertainment element that he needs when i think this is a guy that's extremely um entertaining whether it's his story and career arc as a cuban fighter or as a um as just this really really fearsome competitor who i think truly believes he's better than anyone in the division which we rarely see from a prospect yeah yeah i'm i'm all in bro i'm i'm sold well i'm gonna we're gonna jump over to a guy i'm not sold on gossiev um larry merchant wants to you mean giasov giasov yeah well he, i do it so well um i am <laughs> There was once a interlude with Larry Merchant, and he talked about my one of my favorite fighters, Bernard Hopkins, being the cooler. There was a movie, The Cooler, when a guy's going on a run in a casino, they'd bring the cooler in to cool the guy down, right? And I feel like he did that to this card. We had a great couple of fights to start, and he really cooled this card way, way down. Um, yes, he beats Pablo Cesar Cano. Was it a good fight? I mean, in terms of getting where he wants to go, it was. In terms of sitting there and watching it, I found I'd find the word laborious, like laborious, um, redundant would be more. What did you see in this fight with Cano? You know what? I I think that there was there's a, a weird thing that happens sometimes when guys spar a lot before they fought, where it's like they know too much about each other. So that's kind of what I saw, bro. I don't know if they if they sparred 10 years ago and there was an experience gap and he heard Giasov, but there was some kind of mental edge that Cano had over Giasov, the, the way I see it. There was a whole lot of – there was a whole lot of respect in that ring. Too much. Too much. And, you know, if they've done 100 rounds together – and it was in a different context or a different time in their careers. Like, I just 
that that's what I saw in this one. I think that the setup of this fight is, you know, he's just going to walk through Cano. Like, I don't know. And I, I, I didn't see that happening. You know, I thought, I thought, it could, you know, that's a guy who's always got a chance to be competitive. Yeah. And look, he's, he wins this fight. I believe he's now set to face Stanley Onis probably for the secondary belt. Um, I don't like that matchup for him. But you also have to, he's at a point where you got to see what you got. You know what I mean? Like he's winning, he's won the fights that you're supposed to win to get to that. And now it's just like, you got to throw him in. He's just at that point. I think he has a great skill set. It's just at what, when does he put all of it together at once? And I think the, the thing I'm hitting at is the way people talked about Andy Cruz is the way I'm kind of feeling about this guy right now. Some people, and I feel like people didn't even watch this fight. Like they might've watched a round or two and then had a great barbecue, Texas barbecue, put he, it on. He's kind of slow too, bro. Like not for oh. nothing. He's he, his hands are a little bit slow, especially when you get up to the elite level at welterweight. Like there was just moments where it was like that, that was slow. Felt like a light heavyweight throwing punches, yeah. but without the power behind it. It just felt like it did not. I was having trouble seeing what he's going to do to translate at the highest level of this division. I'm not saying he can't do it, but if he fought this way, the the pace of the fight alone just feels different from a Crawford, from a Boots, from yep. a, a standing on The pace that this fight was fought at was kind of fought at an old guy pace. It's a little of, more, yeah, it's a, it's a little more... Uh, Janabek pace or you know like a like a bigger fighter and and this also to me this felt like a guy who's struggling making the transition from amateur to pro to be honest with you yeah I've, i i remember seeing him earlier in his career and i was always super impressed i always thought he was really good it's not translating with kind of like more slicker pros that have experience um but he did win the fight, and he did learn the opportunity, right? So we have to hope that the the, the sanctioning bodies actually enforce their rankings. They will right? because the WBA has two belts, so they always they always enforce it. It's just which champion will get it. More than likely, it'll be Stanionis. Uh Antonio Vargas, Jonathan Rodriguez was a fantastic fight. Dakota, what did you think of that? Was that the fight of the month, or would you put the Natashinga Curiel fight above it? What do you think right now, buddy? Well, and it's tough too, right? We, we got to talk about the the opener between Rivera and Dominguez because that was another incredible fight. Not as close and competitive necessarily, but incredible. I mean, this fight was nuts, man. This was back and forth. Both guys getting dropped. It felt like, especially in the first half, every time uh, Rodriguez would let his hands go, it would hurt Vargas. And it, it felt like that was always an option. But Vargas's pressure and consistency and accuracy just kind of kept building up and it, it was a it was a classic. So I spoke to Antonio Vargas this week for boxingscene.com and he had sparred Jonathan Rodriguez. They had done four rounds recently, and I think that this is the good example of sparring someone where both guys felt like they probably got the better of the work and both guys knew what the other guy did and they both came in. And they both got their licks in because they knew the other guy. Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing, too, was they both surprised each other as well, it seemed like. You know, that knockdown in the first round, I don't think Vargas saw that coming. And, and the way that the, the second round completely flipped around, I don't think Rodriguez saw that coming. So it was just – it was it was a wild, fun, unpredictable fight that, 
you know, it started to feel like Vargas was picking up steam, but there was never a moment until the end where it was like Rodriguez is not in this anymore. Yeah, it was that was a really, really fun one. I think people are going to overlook it because it's like and then to talk later, he's now the number one contender for uh, Takuma, not Nao. Takuma. He's, in a way. he's great, bro. He's he's fantastic. We're going to get into it, bro. Don't bury the lead. But now we have in a way Vargas set up to fight and that's like a low-key fight of the year type bout this is this is some there's a couple of fun matchups at 118 especially and we'll get to of that as well but especially with nakatani moving up there it's a it's getting to be a fun weight class yeah i mean all it takes is just like a new identity and a new guy and then weight classes become fun again um what did you want to say about the reniel dominguez fight oh man Yankee Rivera was boxing a beautiful fight. The first couple of rounds were like a banger, and then Rivera really separated himself. And then in the ninth, Dominguez just about knocked him out, and Rivera barely got through the fucking round. And it was just a, it was a real fun ride of a fight, even if the the scores were wide. Felt like we were in for a great evening of fights, and then we hit that third bout, and I think it kind of killed everything. You know, yeah. and it's, yeah. it kind of sucks because the first two fights really had this frenetic energy. The crowd was into it. And I feel like even if Cruz had to come on, Cruz has an action-packed style, and it would have kind of crescendoed with Berlanga. These five-fight main cards, you got to be picky about the fights and the, the spacing because I do feel like we lost a little bit of that energy that we built up in the beginning. This, before we move on from this card altogether – what what is your take on because this is kind of a weird topic, but what what is your take on Edgar kind of being a dirty fighter? Like I, I hate saying that, but like he bit a guy. This fight, there was a you know, there was an elbow in the face. He's he's known to kind of get his head in the mix. Like I, I feel like that's kind of becoming an MO of his is that Edgar's a little bit of a dirty fighter. When a fighter tells you who they are, believe them. Yeah. Right. We know what he, we know what he is and we shouldn't be surprised by it. I don't yep. even think Bernard Hopkins would take that as a um, an insult if you called him a dirty fighter. I think there's a level of experience to it. But I think that he if was you so were slick with it, though, bro, Edgar's kind of out in the open, like I'm losing control of myself. Whereas with Bernard, I feel like he's just fucking with your head. Well, I think that for Berlanga and this is just me talking from what I'm witnessing from my couch. So. As everyone knows, that's the holy grail of everything. A guy from sitting in his couch knows everything, bro. So for me, there's an element. There's always been an emotional element to Berlanga when you see him. There's always been passion. There's always been kind of that. And I think that's what also made him the star he is because I think there is an emotional element. And I think emotions, as I talked about in my book, they're not really great in fights because they can lead to you doing things you probably typically wouldn't do before. And maybe his power comes from his emotion because he channels that emotion into the power. I think also there's an element of kind of like an undercurrent, like, I don't know how to say it, but like working class, tough guy people in New York city that he speaks to. And I think in that subculture of like a working class guy there's a level of sometimes i in new york i have to get down and down and dirty and i think that he transfers a little bit of that 
I don't know, like the fan base he speaks to, I think that a little bit of that also comes into the ring with him. Like I, I would agree with I would agree with everything you were saying if he hadn't already bit somebody, which is sort of like an unhinged thing beyond but like that's the emotion. But it that's different than hitting somebody on the hip on the other side of the referee in the clinch. You know what I mean? Well, I just I just you know what I say. Believe him. Yep. When guys do this, like we could sit up in here until we're gray in the face. Look, don't, basically, what you're saying is don't ever be surprised by it ever again. Well, look, if you went in to fight Berlanga, would you tell your kid, okay, um, when when he lets go on the break, be sure to just walk back. It's all good. Um, when you're in close, like, I mean, I'd be telling him, look, he, he has a history. He can get rugged. And when he gets frustrated, he's prone to possibly get rough and tumble because he feels he's the stronger and more intimidating guy in there. And I almost, been, there's a part of me that almost feels like he does it if, when he's feeling impatient. I see that. I see you that know? because it's almost like he's expecting a result. And when the result doesn't happen, he's mad at himself and he's looking for any way to. Or he's to just change. anxious to get it. He's anxious to get to that result without doing the doing the work. And I'm I'm optimistic, right? Because I think that could also be a thing of being young. I used to play a video game and punch the ground and break something because I lost a game. Now I don't do it. So is this a character thing or is this a maturity thing in life? That's what my thing is because I don't want to label him as a dirty fighter, which would then label a part of him as a dirty person, right? Because who you are as a fighter carries over to your life. I don't know if he's that. I think that it's 50-50 call because I think it also could be immaturity. He's a young guy. And- I tend to think it's that because I don't th- I'm not saying that because he's a dirty fighter, he's a dirty person. I'm saying I don't think he always has control over himself. And I think that could be an issue for him. Yeah, I think that's the maturity, right? And I think yeah. that's going the rounds. I think that's the the getting experience. I think that's also learning how to not listen to criticism. I think that he takes criticism really to heart because he's so young. And he's so famous. And I think as he is in this position longer and longer, the comfort he has in that position, I think we might hopefully not see that. But a lot of great fighters have struggled with this issue. This is not an issue that journeyman fighters often struggle with only. This is an issue that plagues many great hall of fame fighters but is this something we're tracking now fight to fight is kind of the maturation and maturity of Berlanga. yeah and i just think that like you know you could you could you could fuck around and find yourself in a andrew galata type position where you're you're fighting a beautiful fight and you you fuck that up for yourself you know yeah no i hear you um and i guess one thing i wanted to throw in here just um aaron aponte lost a fight he was signed to match room he's lost two of his last three fights he lost a deep undercard bout um not sure many people tuning in are wanting to know that but that happened and i always think i I have some cool backstory on that fight very randomly but um the when I did commentary for Reyes boxing, Joseph Fernandez was on that card somewhere in the middle of it, and he actually got knocked out in I believe the first round by a guy who was nine and seventeen at the time and had almost exclusively stoppage losses. 
And so to see that that rebound, that that reversal of course in the last two years to go from you know getting knocked out in a club show by a guy who's nine and seventeen to beating a once promising prospect on the zone to me was really cool to watch. Yeah, and I mean I think that that stuff's notable because there are good fights on undercards and these undercard fighters do deserve stories and we try our best to do the best we can. Uh, what do you think of our good friend Lionel Watson's comment in the chat right here? I mean, listen, bro. He gave the guy too much respect. He, he his timing and his speed was not on point. He there's he has times where he's effective just because he's a big strong guy. But yeah, bro, he's he's not uh, he's not good TV right now. Okay, let's go over to Junto Nakatani. How special do you think he is? I'm all about Junto Nakatani, bro, because I thought Santiago is a tremendous fighter. I thought that the Donaire fight was awesome. You know, he's been in there with a ton of top guys. And Nakatani, not that long ago, was 112-pounder, so it's tough to know how this fight's going to go. But, man, he's, like, in a way where it's, like, he's already so big like and this is what Inoue doesn't have too. He's already five foot eight and was like looking like a lightweight at one twelve. So the more he moves up in weight, it's just like yeah, okay, he's still bigger than all these guys, and I could see him doing that basically up to featherweight. Yeah, I mean this is it's really a special time for Japanese boxing. Like, how yep. many world champions do they have? How many of the best fighters do they have? To me, like Nakatani, I know the legend Jack Kelly believes he's a pound-for-pound pound fighter. He's right up there with me right now. Um, he's a little – see, the thing is, like, I've got Ioka and Estrada up there still. Estrada doesn't fight. You got to you know, if we got to talk about Bam, too, you know. But, like, so, like, I've got – I don't know if I can put him in just yet because it's like there needs to be a little bit of the changing of the guard – Bivble, better beef happens, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, divisions get shaken up, and then all of a sudden you can put new names in. But he's like number 11 or 12 right now. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's 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 first off the bench. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's really just a matter of somebody dropping off of that list, at least for me. And I think I also need to – not that Santiago – Santiago is an elite-level guy. I just need to see him in with another great. Yeah, it's kind of the in a way problem, right? Because it's like we're talking about like we need to see you in there with well, an in a way doesn't have that problem though. He's already beaten, you know what I mean, a lot of the top guys of his, you know, of his Yeah, but like the criticism was because Nakatani could also say I've beaten some really good fighters, you just don't know who I beat. Now, in a way, beat a little bit better fighters, more distinguished fighters, Jamie McDonald, etc. Like really, really good fighters that I was excited about. But, I mean, Nakatani's not beating bad guys. He beat Maloney, and then he followed that up with beating R.G. Cortez, who gave Estrada a really hard fight. And nobody's sitting around here going, oh, man, that was pretty incredible. He just, he like, what he's doing isn't quite in a way, but it's not that far removed from it. And I think it's just the fact that he's in the shadow of in a way. In a way, is like this. But those are great wins, but I don't know that you can compare those to – beating Stephen Fulton your first time at 122, you know? 
But I, what I'm saying is before Inouye went to Fulton and fought that, I remember talking to you about Inouye, and it would be like, okay, he's got some wins here and there, but really the Fulton win and how he won it kind of stamped him, I think, to a lot of fans because they just sure. felt comfortable. Nakatani to me feels like where Inouye was two to three years ago, where it's like he he's really good. If you know, you know. If you don't know, you can just sit around and say, ah, I need to see more. Yeah. But he's beating the guys you ask a world champion to beat and maybe not getting the credit you would hope. But we hope that those dues are being paid right now so he gets that big opportunity. But if you're a hardcore fight fan, I don't think it gets much better than watching a Junto Nakatani fight currently. I also think aesthetically he's not as explosive and athletic as in a way as what he is, is he's powerful and he's accurate and he's smart. He's not, he's not like a freak the way in a way is. It's like watching Vince Carter and then watching a guy who, who can dunk, but he's also playing the position a little bit yeah. more. Like you got Chris, Chris Paul who can dunk a little bit, but he's also going to be running point. And then you got Michael Jordan who gives you a highlight real play. They're both greats, but I think a lot more people are going to be drawn to Jordan because he wins wins these big accomplishments. He dunks. He's cool. But Chris Paul is still a phenomenal player. You might not rank him above Michael Jordan, but he's yep. still in the conversation of a great player. Yep. What did you think of um, Takuma Inouye beating uh, Jerwin Enkanahas? I got to say, personally, I went out on a limb. I thought Enkanahas was going to beat him. Um, Inouye's father has to be trainer of the year two months in because I had never been impressed with uh, Takuma to have this type of performance against a former world champion. Um, this is phenomenal. And pretty dominant too. You know, I mean, and Kaha said his moment, but it's like in the pocket, man, in a way is really sharp. You know what I mean? He's really, he, he likes to be in the pocket and kind of swap punches, but he knows how to roll and slip and be slick it, it, again he's not like uh naoya where he's a, a explosive and like a like a freak athlete but he's an, an extremely fast and he's like a slickster you know what i mean he's a little bit more of a slickster he's just kind of tough to hit he's tricky he's got fast hands and clearly he's got more pop than the record might indicate yeah i mean he's to me, this was a star-making performance. He's no longer in a way's brother. He's a bona fide champion. Right. He's I, the Rafael Marquez now. He's you Yeah. Know. I don't know if you felt that way, but I felt like he kind of got promoted based off of being the brother of this great guy, this great fighter. He was kind of in the shadow. I kind of assumed that he might not make it at the top level consistently. And this performance, it felt like he was a bona fide champion in his own right and that you know, he's not he's not a guy that's getting opportunities. Maybe he's getting opportunities because of his name, but it's not solely based on his name. There is some reason why he's in these positions. Well, and especially at that weight, you know, I just think like he's he's got to have some of the fastest hands at 118 right now. If not the fastest. Right? I mean, and I, inside the pocket, bro, I like watching him. I know that you know, he can box and do it from the outside like that too, bro. But he's just real sharp with how he places everything on the inside. Yeah, he's a uh, – don't don't crucify me, but he's a joy to watch. 
I like that term. He's a joy to watch. Um, do you have any thoughts on Tanaka, Kosi Tanaka? He was a guy that I think a lot of the hardcore internet boxing fans really fell in love with. He's a character. Kazuto Ioka absolutely ran through him. But as you know, and I know, Ioka, when he fights, there's no way to ever watch his fights. So um, for whatever reason, he's like, you know, he's the 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 secret CD. You know, when bands used to have like, maybe I'm too old, so you don't remember this, but there used to be like mythical for like underground artists. There'd be like, oh, here's uh, here's the album that they had, but they only sold it at shows and you couldn't get it very op. Um, very easily, etc. I think he's like an album, an album cut guy. Like if you're a hardcore fan, kind of falls into the Ken Shiro category for me. Really fun. Don't see him making it at the top level. What do you do you see, if anything, Dakota? Unfortunately, I didn't see it, brother. The 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 only fights I saw on that card were Nakatani and uh, you know. I think I did a good job summing it up. So, I mean, I think that's that's all. But we it need. sounds like it, this is, and this is just a random thing that I thought of, but there was a Mostaf album a bunch of years ago that was like uh, directly connected to an art exhibit. So the only way you could hear the album was by experiencing this particular exhibit. It sounds like that's the kind of fighter this guy is. Yeah, and like you're gonna you're gonna find some really good people in boxing who are hardcore who will sit and talk to us for boxing for hours. And Tanaka is going to be one of their guys because like, he's the hidden gem of Japanese boxing. He's probably not. And it's kind of like Ken Shiro's that way too. He's going to always be in the shadow of Ioka, the Inoue brothers. Like he's never, in my opinion, ever going to fully be the guy. And he's probably going to lose a brutal war at some point. But there are some fans that have just taken a liking to these guys. They're, they're the people they're drawn to. And I think that, it's important because I think they're the, I don't know who would be, who's the six through 10 guys in America that they're not one through five, but they're six to 10 on the pound for pound. Ooh, I mean, but I think that we don't have to name them, but like, that's where these guys, I think in Japanese boxing sit to me is like, yeah. they're the guys on the back end of the list, but there's some people that have drawn a liking to like, and to watch these guys because some of their flaws make them interesting. Um, where are we starting first? Do you want to go top rank or do you want to go Jake Paul? Dude, you drive, brother. Okay, let's go with the top rank card because um, we just will. Uh, we got a, a featherweight title fight between Ray Ford and I can't say his name, Klomatov. Said it perfectly. Dakota, <laughs> what's your expectation in this fight? For those that are unaware, um, the Eastern European fighter who I'm struggling to say his name, Otebek. Um, he signed with top rank, top rank won the purse bid. Most people thought Matchroom would have won the purse bid. And this would have been on one of Eddie's cards. It's happening in Verona, New York and upstate New York. It's a really, really good card. In my opinion, it's probably one of the better cards we've had. And this is going to be a very, very interesting world title fight because I think what makes it fun is, we have two fighters with two completely contrasting styles. And if both guys have success in this fight and they're both able to win a little bit of rounds, I'm interested. I think we could sneak around and have a great, one of the great fights of the year, because typically in my opinion, when you get two fighters that do two contrasting things and there's a good pressure fighter who can have some success with knockdowns or getting close. But if Ray Ford can box enough, that creates a unique drama that can create like an Arislandi Lara 
versus uh, Alfredo Angulo, which to me was a fantastic bout. So um, let's uh, let's let's do that. Let's talk about it. And here we go. We got all these things coming. Um, so we talk Ray Ford and the fight. All of a sudden, people are in the chat. We're going to get to your questions, but I want Dakota to kind of give us his bit of research that he's doing right now. He's literally doing his research right now for this card. Um, give me your thoughts. I mean, I've been on Ray Ford for a hot minute, and especially after the the Magdaleno fight, his last fight, which was he was just spectacular. He really looked like an elite championship level fighter, and he made Magdaleno look confused. Um, I think I, the only time I saw Kolmatov, I, I think I've seen him once, and I was very impressed with him. Um, I don't know enough about him to compare him to Ray Ford, but I think that Ray Ford's had one of those progressions where it's like, yeah, he's it's time for him to get in with it, get in for a title. He's fought the right kind of fights in his come up. He's had difficult fights. He's had close fights. He's had challenging fights, and it's made him into, I think, a, a top level guy. Uh, Joshua Cabrera, good friend. Keep an eye on Elijah Pierce. He's 122-126. He's on an overtime uh, exciting fighter. We got Lionel Watson. Do you think Ray Ford will get fair scorecards? Because I think he'll win. Uh, bipolar boxing picks. We love you jumping in here. I'll be ringside for this. I like Ford at 135 uh, as the underdog. Um, and enjoy being there ringside because this is gonna and bipolar boxing picks. Be sure to get there early. There's a great undercard. And try to talk to some of those undercard fighters, whether you're in the lobby or afterwards, even if you just say good fight. I think it means a lot to people to be on that big of a stage, but not be on the stage to just hear some feedback from people they've never seen in their life. I think that matters. And even the fans can take that with them is if you go to a show and you see a guy who fought third on the card, maybe if he walks by to get his nachos or whatever, tell him, Hey, that was good fight, et cetera, because that'll probably stay with him for a while. Um, I'm not a big person to get into like these mythical bad scorecard things. You know how I feel. I don't think it's ever corruption for the most part. I think it's incompetence. I think that some judges score, follow the leader, guys walking forward, inconsequential punches get scored because of volume, et cetera. I think my bigger fear is Ray Ford has a habit of sitting on the ropes. This is the worst guy to sit on the ropes against because even if he doesn't land anything, you will lose the round. So the question for Ray Ford in this fight is, can he dictate this fight in the center of the ring? Because if he sits on the, on the ropes, I think this is a very difficult fight for him to win. So this fight to me comes down to, can he keep this fight in the middle of the ring? Yeah. Cause Kolmatov is a good, good pressure fighter. I think Lionel to add to what you're saying, the way I kind of look at it myself is like, that's always in the mix. That's always potential, you know, if you want to say 20% of the top-level fights we watch, the scores aren't good. I feel like that's probably pretty close to accurate. So, I don't – unless, you know, and I'm just going to be real, bro. Texas and Florida is notorious – are notorious uh, commissions for having bad scoring. Um, so, there's certain places where I'm more suspicious than others. But outside of that, it's always in the mix, bro. I mean, I think that I'm, I'll be honest with you. I think one fighter is going to have their way with the other fighter in this fight. I just don't know which one. I think you're either going to see a guy get walked down and sit on the ropes and it being fairly competitive, but just losing rounds on the ropes, 
or I think Ray is going to neutralize him really quickly with a jab and the fight is going to be fought in the center of the ring. And there's really going to be no way. I don't. I or think maybe so. we'll get a Jonathan Rodriguez, Antonio Vargas type fight. Well, that's the best case scenario is we get a fight where both guys want to leave it on the line. But I have a feeling this is going to be a fight where both guy, one guy is able to dictate it and the fight will get interesting because another one is going to take a chance because this is a world title opportunity. I think it's going to be a stellar fight. I think people are sleeping on it because this is the next generation. These are the next names and the next generation is now, but because people don't know who Ray Ford is because he's mostly fought on undercards because I think Otebeck, his win was against Thomas Patrick Ward on a DAZN card. I want to say like a That's year and a half ago. Yeah. So he hasn't fought a lot. Right. So it's like, you look at 360 promotions, they got Gore, you're your, Urincian, I think I said that right. Um, he's fought four times in eight months. So it's like activity matters. And when you're not active in the sport of boxing, all of a sudden the fans forget who you are because what did you do late? Oh, you fought two years ago. That's the thing. Um, bipolar boxing picks says 24 years ago to the day I went to my first box match, the kid, the same venue, Paul Spadafora versus Victorano. So says the main event. Looking forward to it. I mean, I think there's no cooler feeling as an adult, unless you feel old, going back somewhere that you have a memory at as an adult with a little bit of money as a as an as a person that can do stuff. That's when life kind of makes sense to me. That's when you're like, okay, that's pretty cool. When you go back to somewhere where you had a memory and it's a fond memory, and then you go back and you experience it as an adult. I, I really enjoy I like doing that even now. Like I broke my teeth in the boxing business going to Tachi Palace. Maybe one day they'll do an event at Tachi Palace again, and I'll go back and be able to – I was on a budget back then. I couldn't afford eating at the cafe. Now I can go to the cafe whenever I want. Like it's just little things like that that kind of help you know we're leveling. Like there's one thing I'll share with you, and maybe Dakota will do this one day. Whenever I've gone to the MGM Grand, there's that fancy restaurant. It's $400 a meal. It's Joel whatever. I've told myself one of these days I'm going to eat there at the MGM all fight week, not because I have to, not because I want to, but because I've always come here and that was never in the budget. So there's going to be one day when I go there. It's not even to rub it in anybody's face. It's just to say as part of my progression in doing this one time, I could come out here and fight right. week because and I can now a, do this comfortably. I can do this because there was a time where I couldn't even imagine going into that place and being served because it just seemed unreal. And that, those are the things. So I'm telling a story to say something to bipolar boxing picks is really cherish those little things because it's cool to go back there, but remember what felt invincible and conquer it when you go back to somewhere. Yeah. Did, did we just do the full recap and then half of the recap was me just doing a rant? No, nah, I mean, that was beautiful. bro. What was your first fight? Live, live first first. Fight, um, it was a fight with my grandfather in Sacramento. I can't tell you the fighters. It might have been the Ukrainian heavyweight that was in West Sacramento. It might have been Tony the Tiger Lopez. It, it was a fight in Sacramento. I couldn't remember any of the fighters. I wasn't invested in any of the fighters. But I remember the local guy should have lost. And my grandpa... My, my two fights, I went to my grandpa. So we went to that fight, and the local one of the local guys should have lost, right? It was a big fight. 
uh, maybe undercar fight. And I remember wanting to protect my grandpa. He's my hero. So I don't want, oh man, how do I, he looks over at me and goes, man, they robbed him. And then they, we just left. And I remember being like, oh, wow. So UFC happens. And my grandpa had always said, I want to go to a UFC um, fight. And I get tickets to something called the WEC. And I've been going to um, those, or I've been going to fights for a while and stuff. And I bought this, <laughs> first started working. So I bought the cheapest seats, the best cheap seats I could get. So the second story, because I couldn't afford being <laughs> any closer, because I think I was maybe 2000 a month or something. So I, I had to do it within a, a budget. And we go there and we get there at the first bell. So we see all the cage fights and I don't know much, but my grandpa was my hero. Once again, he had always told me he wanted to see it. It's pay-per-view fight. There's a guy named Uriah Faber and uh, he loses to this guy, Joe Sayaldo. He gets his leg kicked and everything. I swear this is going somewhere. And this is going to tie into where we first went. So we, my grandpa was in his eighties at the time. He didn't walk all that fast. So we had to go down the stairs and up. So middle of the third round, we had to leave because we wanted to beat traffic. We got, it takes grandpa a little while to get going. So we're getting up and you know, you get the, the guys in the energy drink shirts saying, Oh, you're not a real fan. I'm like, come on. I'm with Gramps. It's, it's, it, do I want to do this with a crowd of people or, you know, so the outcome's inevitable. So we get there and we're in a handicap sticker and we're at the old Arco arena. I go there. Pull, pull off the handicap sticker, put it down. And uh, it's very therapeutic for me, by the way, because my grandma has just passed away. So this is a very therapeutic story for me. So appreciate it. Awesome. So appreciate it. Um, so we look in the car and I start the engine and I'm kind of, because he'd always bragged about knowing Uriah Faber. He was from Auburn, California. My grandpa and my uncles had known him and I'm just sitting there going, shoot. He's going to be so frustrated and all this. And he looks over and goes, well, I'm glad the kid from Brazil got a fair shake and won it. You know, that's good for him. And that moment took me back to that boxing match he took me to. And I didn't even connect the two until that moment in that car. And we drove back. And um, I remember they tried to make me spend the night. It was like 1230 and I had to sneak out of the house. They're like, oh, just sleep here, stay here. And I had to work the next day at seven in the morning. But they're like, oh, don't worry. You can leave from here. It's like two and a half hours back. So I remember I let them tuck me in, et cetera. Boom. Go out the side door, lock the door, jump over the thing because they had locked their gate. So I had to jump the gate um, and drove home. And I just remember. I remember that memory and uh, another i'd say the first memorable fight in recent memory was someone that i've been around a lot lately james page so james page i don't know if you remember james page world champion could have fought trinidad and stuff got accused and arrested of bank robbery came back on a club show to do a revival fought a guy with a muslim name yusabaf i can't remember i can spell it rahman yusabaf and he gets he gets caught and knocked out second round and then gets arrested again. But that's not part of the story. But I remember being at this club show fight and just being so useless. Juan Lascano, I did an interview with the Hispanic Cause of Panic. I didn't know how to do an interview because my mic was really bad. So I got like the worst quality mic. Um, 
I remember I was sitting where the commission was supposed to sit at times. Like, I just didn't know what I was supposed to do. But I had never been somewhere where I was getting respect without deserving respect because I had been doing corporate or I'd been doing this. And it's like they really made you know that you were so insignificant. And that was that was something was I just went to this ballroom, the Sheridan Four Points over in Roseville. And it was like Mari Cornejo, Aaron Coley, James Page. They were all on this card. And I got treated with dignity and respect, and I got addicted to the game. So that is my memories. Let's see what the boxing pick. Thank you. I'm from the area. Just moved back from Vegas. Either of you guys uh, been to the Boxing Hall of Fame. We would love to have you here. It's 10 minutes down the road. I haven't been. Me and Dakota are going to do a road trip to the Hall of Fame one of these days. It's just not probably going to be this one. We're going to be picking, choosing when it's a fighter or a fight person that we might have some form of contact with. But um, if I had an unlimited budget, I'd go every year, but no one's really dying to hear my takes on hall of fame boxers and getting coverage. Um, Dakota, why don't you just interject real quick? What am I, what, what am I interjecting with? I, even that works. So let, okay. Now we're back to the program and um, the co-main event is Luis Alberto Lopez Venado taking on a guy I have no friggin' clue who he is, Japanese boxer, number one contender. Do we rationally, can we rationally even fairly judge this fight at all? I mean, the only thing I'll say is I'm looking, this guy did beat Kiko Martinez's last fight. You can't be a softy and beat Kiko Martinez. It's got to say something about your level, at least to some extent. Um Listen, bro, Lopez is fighting a lot of tough fights. It's been like six in a row where he's coming in on the B side. Maybe not six, but there's been a bunch of them. You know, pretty much every fight he's had at the top level, he's the B side. He's the underdog. And, um, you know, he can't, can't fight killers every single time. And I, I don't think this guy's a softie. I also think that they're like – there's a car crash effect to taking tough fights over and over. And there's also some guys are better on the B side than the A side. And one thing I'm watching for is to make sure that he's not the rare animal that struggles carrying in the show, but loves being the villain. Cause that's something that I've heard is I think he embraces being the guy that's going to ruin someone's day, but it's kind of harder for him to be the guy that has to fulfill the obligations of a main event fighter on the A side promotionally. Because Shock Foster spoke to this. You don't have as much time when you're carrying the card. When you're the B-side and you're supposed to lose, you got all the time in the world. You sit in your room, do all this. I think the biggest battle for Venato is not how he fights, but dealing with the transition of being the star. Yeah. Well, and I, I think he's he's kind of proven, right? Like, I would say this is the first big fight where he is going to be that guy he is the guy and i think he's becoming the guy at featherweight as far as formal rankings are concerned um and i think it, for this is like a maintenance fight you know he's not taking a bad fight he's taking he's staying busy you know featherweight is kind of a division in flux especially with lee wood leaving so how the belts shake out and you know it's a division in transition and I, i'd rather see him 
stay busy against the guy who just beat Kiko Martinez and then not fight. Yeah, I mean, I just I think that for him, he's a he's a character, bro. He's a character, and uh, um, yeah, he's just a character. And we had something moving in the background, so I I had to conceal that. Um, I don't know, Venado, Venado to me, him and Emmanuel Navarrete are like the closest thing to like a modern Morales or. Uh, like one of these Mexican lower weight legends, but it just certainly feels like people are not getting behind fighters. Like when I was younger, like the underdog story of Luis Alberto Lopez is kind of that, that we want to see, right? Some guy that was being brought in as cannon fodder and keeps upsetting people until he wins a world title. And then he keeps doing it again. He's brought in to lose to Conlon, hypothetically beats Conlon, but his performance against Joe Gonzalez was not the performance I wanted to see he looked like a guy that had had a lot of fights. So I guess my question is, is that foreshadowing of things to come or is that just one off night? I think Joette's a great fighter. So I, you know, I, I have to give Joette credit for just kind of always showing up on the night on that one. Um, with a guy like Venado, there's always that potential that you kind of hit that threshold and you don't know when that threshold is going to come. I thought that he looked very explosive in his last fight, and I'm not as worried about it. And I think even though he's been in a lot of hard fights, I don't know that he's ever gotten whooped on. So it's it, it's different kinds of hard fights. Yeah. No, I get you, bro. We're going to do a little inter- undercard deep dive with people. So Just I'm to wrap that up, I want to see. I, I really would love to see him against Espinosa. I mean that's that's the fight, right? We want to Bonato. We want to see in some Mexican fights, like with Mexican or, or against Robesi, bro. I, I I would love to see that fight. But I want to see, given the history of Mexican legends fighting each other, we we're really looking for a great Mexican versus Mexican classic fight that could be compared to our Morales Berea. We've really been searching for that for nearly two decades. And the fact that he's at or around that weight class and has a style that could be in a fight of the year, I think that really speaks to something. Um, Lopez versus Mauricio Lara would be awesome as well. Yep. I agree, but I also think Mauricio Lara is so up and down in performances. Um, I'm just not sure you can trust him. Um, undercard, what we're going to get into, Brian Norman, Janelson, Boca Chica, Figueroa. Uh, thoughts on that? That's an, That's a... I don't know, maybe 60-40 fight, 60% Norman, 40% Janelson Boca Chica Figueroa, who's a very tough Detroit-based fighter, big puncher. I think his loss, he had a draw with Shenard Bunch, which probably should have been a loss. And then he lost to a fairly, I want to say Samuel Tia maybe beat him before Sam Tia passed away. Um, this is off the top of my head. Roman Villa. Roman Villa. So um, Roman Villa, so that's a very good fighter. Bocaccia, um yeah. So I mean, what do you like? That's that's a fight that stands out to me. We got Duke Reagan versus Brian Valdez. Valdez has been in with some experienced people. Rohan Polanco versus Tariq Zananian. That's two undefeated fighters, I believe, going against each other. Tariq has a style where he's very avoidant, moves a lot. Uh, Troy Isley versus Marcos Hernandez captures my attention. Floyd Diaz versus Edwin Rodriguez, who's always a tough out, captures my attention. Nico Ali Walsh versus Luke 
Ian Nooch exactly just how I said, who was on the <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> who was on the We podcast. And then a guy from up your way that you should probably talk to, Bryce Mills. Um really, really good undercard. If you're if you're ready to just crack a pizza box open, sit back and watch for five hours. I would dare say that the undercard of this fight offers a lot of 50-50, 60-40, 70-40 type bouts and really offers a lot of value. What do you what stands out to you of those fights that I read? Well, the two that really stand out for me, the, the first one being Troy Isley and Marcos Hernandez. I'm just I'm enjoying seeing Troy develop. I love that he takes challenging fights, you know, coming off the fight with Vladimir Hernandez. It, it, really tough opponent and a tough fight. Um, the other one for me personally is just Luke Ayana Chile and, and Nico Ali Walsh had Luke on the Slip and Weed podcast recently. And like, you know, I got to, I got to commentate his pro debut and I've watched his development. And I think maybe what people don't know about him is that, you know, when some guys come up on a local club scene or whatever, there's not that many people there to see him. Anytime I've seen Luke Ayana Chile, there's a lot of people there to see him. So even on that club level, he's used to having a lot of expectations around his performances. Um, and I've seen him fight in completely different styles. He's a real versatile guy. I really like Nico as well. And I think that um, that's 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 kind of a, the, the sleeper of the card. I'm going to give a hot take. Are you ready? Always. I think someone on this undercard is not going to be with top rank after this weekend. I think someone's going to get upset and they might, they might not be with the promotion after this weekend. I don't think it's Nico Ali Walsh. I think win or lose, he'll be with the company because I think that he's just an interesting figure to follow. And I think networks are interested in him. I think that Nico occupies a space that Jake Paul occupies. There's going to be a lot of criticism based on the lack of amateur pedigree, but like you said, where does this guy, Luke, that you just had on your podcast that's a blue-collar guy who's given it all, there's a new space that a guy like Nico occupies that allows a fighter like himself an opportunity to make a name for himself. Where Luke's opportunity would have used to come would have been get yourself to the eight-round fights and we're going to put you in with an Olympian. And now he gets to step up and there's a guy that's, um, if we're going to be honest, a more winnable fight. And I yeah. think that a lot of people are like, oh, well, that shouldn't happen. I look at it the other way is the club guys are now getting some real opportunities to break their teeth in the game and to get a big moment, you know, and to see if they can run with it. Yeah, and it's two completely different come-ups. Nico's entire career has been available for us to watch, and Luke's career has been on this regional level where – you know, there hasn't been the same amount of exposure. There's just been local buzz. Um, and I'm excited for him that, that it's kind of culminating in, in getting this opportunity. But I mean, I think that if Nico didn't have a famous family, his career would happen on a regional club scene. And that's what makes this fight so interesting is talent for talent. There's a, not a huge gap. And the big thing with this fight is Nico's a big puncher. Luke's moving up in weight, so that favors Nico, right? Because big puncher, smaller guy. But how does Luke handle fighting a famous guy? Because that's the story of this fight. Because all the guys are going to be like, oh, he's not that good. He's not this. He's not that. Like, you hear that in the gyms, right? Oh, he's actually not that good. 
there's a difference between being in the gym and being there fight night, right? Because there's a level of truth to anybody who competes at, on television. There's a level of truth to anyone that gets opportunities because someone sees a little bit of something in them. And even if that's money, even if it's a good story, people buy into that stuff. The fighters buy into that stuff. Nico is not someone who is unfamiliar with the rodeo that is top rank. He knows the system. Luke doesn't. This is a big stage. So for me watching this fight, I know what, how Nico is going to behave. How is Luke going to handle the moment? I think that's the story of this fight. Totally. And I, but, and I also think that for Nico, the, the story is how is he going to handle an unbeaten fighter who has no even concept of losing at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that's another good one. Our guy Lionel Watson wanted to throw uh, Duke Reagan in there. You know I'm a huge Duke Reagan fan. I enjoy him. I think he gets criticized, as many fighters get criticized, for not having a lot of knockouts, which I always think is kind of a weird. And just he's not active. Okay, that was an abrupt, that was like a William Faulkner sentence. You just hit me with a one-liner and said, I'm just going to go. Well, he's not active. I mean, and we don't know the full story there. Maybe there's an injury or something. But in terms of one of the people I was tracking into the pros, I was so interested in the Duke story because it's like he got this silver medalist. He's hitting the ground running with top rank. He's got like the most American name ever. Duke like John Wayne, Reagan like Ronald Reagan. It's like it it just felt like something unique. And all that he's gone through over the past couple of years and – it just, I don't know what's going on. And it I, I'm never hoping to see a fighter have a certain type of performance, but it wouldn't be nice given the depth of featherweight and the shaking of the division if he could emerge there. My only concerns with Duke is it seems like the inactivity leads to bad habits in the ring, that he gets caught with right hands that he really shouldn't get hit with. Like that's been the big issue is I just see – he gets hit with shots you just can't get hit with by the elite level of the division. Yeah, when he gets hit, it's very clean. Like his game is super sharp, but when he gets hit, it's they're clean shots. I wouldn't say it's exactly the same, but I'd say there's a level of Tony Harrison to him where he could be pitch, pitching a shutout at points, and then when he gets hit, he really gets hit. Yep, that's a, that's a good comparison. Okay, let's jump over and then wrap this thing up. Um MVP Promotions, shout out MVP. Uh, they're doing a card with Amanda Serrano. She's taking on Nina Meineke. Uh, once again, I have no clue who Amanda Serrano's opponent is. I am 100% sure she is tough as hell because that is the Amanda Serrano way, fighting people I've never heard of, and they are they come and they're ready to fight, and it's just a all-out war. Um Obviously, I assume you are just as well-informed as me on her opponent, so you're probably not going to know much. But at this point, where do you think the legacy of Amanda Serrano stands in the sport of boxing and for women's boxing? The legacy is 12 three-minute rounds, brother. The legacy is being a trailblazer and being the first to, uh, you know, to compete under the, the same terms as uh, championship men and, uh, you know, we're in a, a transition where it's unclear how that's going to go moving forward, but she's taken it upon herself to, to be the first and to try to make that um, a standard. Yeah. I mean, I think that the big thing with her is 
this story is the story, right? The fights are secondary because what she's trying to do is she's trying to fight for what she sees as equal rights and equity, equitable treatment amongst women and men in boxing. And the WBC has taken a stance where they're just saying, we're not going to sanction your fights if it's three minute rounds um, because it's not safe or something. They're citing something. And I guess that's the big story leading into her fights is her saying, yes, we can. Yes, we should be able to fight the same as the men. But then at the same time, when we had Rick Ramos on, he brings up a great point that like, is the pay going to change? So now we're going to make the fights longer. And, more I, I think, and I think that's part of what makes Amanda so impressive is she, she can't be worried about all those things at once. So she's just going to put the game on her back and do it. And somebody was going to have to, even if it was a transition. I always thought the transition would be 12 two-minute rounds, which I've always said is such a common sense thing of like, okay, you have shorter rounds for women's boxing. Let's at least have the same number of rounds. It's kind of a no shit thing. And, you know, as opposed to waiting for that moment to arrive, Amanda's creating that moment. Yeah, I mean, Nina Manaki, um, I'm trying to do the, the half-butted research right now. Um, let's see. Real-time, real-time research. She is a Southpaw. She's from German. She's like the most blonde woman ever, according to her box rec photo. Uh, mostly fought in Germany. Mostly fought kind of, it looked like, favorable opposition. She did go to Copenhagen and lost to Sarah Mafound in 2022. She had lost earlier in her career. She had lost to Katie. She actually got stopped by Katie Taylor. So, I mean, who knows, right? So, like, she's kind of the, the – what it seems like with her is she probably jumped in rather inexperienced, got stopped by Katie Taylor, got some opportunities, got rebuilt in the German market, and this is probably her last big opportunity. She's 30 years old, Southpaw that's your assessment of this but really the story of the fight is amanda serrano trying to get a change in the spark i also think that the story of the fight should be how many more just tough fights for no reason does amanda have in her you know like i i feel like she's such a star that it's like i would love for her to at least you know before she wraps it up to save a little bit of what she's got left for a 12 threes in a big fight well, I think that might be the sad truth is I don't think she has a lot more left. And I'm getting the feeling that her and Katie Taylor, if they do the fight, will do it when they're both done. Yeah. And, and, but I don't think Katie's the only big fight for her because of her weight right. versatility. I mean, I think the two fights are her versus Katie and Alicia Baumgartner. The problem with Baumgartner is we don't even know what's going on with that PED thing. Like, we have no clue what's going on. Is she going to fight again? Uh, I mean, the fight that I would be interested in, honestly, is her and Gabriela Fandora. I mean, that's another good one, but I just don't – I just don't think the ages are going to match up because I just think that that, was, that would be such a big reach for one of the fighters to meet in the middle. It's just – I just don't think that – I think it's going to be two different eras, and that's a video game fight, sadly. It's just going to be people in two different ages. Um, let's go talk about my buddy real quick. Ryan Borland, my good buddy, the Rhino. I've known him for 
probably about 12 years now. Uh, long, long time. He's fighting Jake Paul. A lot of people are bringing up that he got knocked out by Israel Dufus, took the fight on short notice. Um, he lost a majority decision to a game veteran, Jose Hernandez, who was called Pete's boy. He's a real fighter. Yes, he's smaller than Jake. There are favorable aspects to him. I think one of the, the biggest cautionary things for Rhino is the fact that he has to go to the inside to get to Jake and Jake is very powerful and dangerous. Like there's a stylistic opportunity for Jake that Rhino to be successful has to do the things Jake has proven to be successful against, but this is boxing. And we know that people don't take fights if it's not a favorable matchup. So Ryan's getting a huge opportunity on a big stage with Jake Paul and Look, Jake is taking the fights that most people said, oh, fight a real boxer. He's doing the developmental boxing thing. This is how these undercards are built of fighters now. He, he's fighting veterans who are being moved up in divisions to maybe be less dangerous. And I, I think it's pretty respectable because he, he's going away from who's the most famous person I can fight to make money to let's fight a real boxer. Yeah, I'm bigger than him, but I'm going to have to grow as a fighter to be able to win this fight or get experience in this fight. To me, it shows a commitment to the sport. I know you're not a fan of Jake, but I'm a fan of what he's doing for this. You said it, buddy. You got to you gotta share your piece, bro. You got to share your piece because we... You really want to know my piece? I want to know your piece, bro. I, I don't give a shit. That's my piece, bro. I don't give a fuck. I don't know what. I get it, bro. He's fighting a boxer. It's all It's all good. It's just he's not playing a game I'm interested in, brother. It's not for me. Can I use more words than that? Because I guarantee you at least half of the audience feels the way you feel. And they're punching air when I said my piece. So you have to speak to the people out there who are just mad. Well, listen, bro, it's like, you know, even when we're building up these cards for and this is again, this is not a diss on your friend. I'm very excited for him that he, that he's earned his way to this opportunity. But everybody else, for the most part, has to fight guys that are in their weight class. And I know that certain guys get moved up and whatever. But one of the only times where that's actually a big jump is light heavyweight and cruiserweight. Right. This is not uh, going from 112 to 115. You're going from fighting upper middle size guys to actually big guys. So it's a it, it's a completely different thing. You could see it when he was in the ring with what's his face. Um, I, I just I see that his career is aimless. It's just not it's 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 all good. You do what you want to do. I respect that he gets in the ring. I'm just not interested in it. Because it it doesn't look like he has the same objectives as other fighters. I mean, I think the aim of his career is to move or maneuver himself into a world title fight through the politics of boxing and then get a vacant title shot and win a right, world title. Right. I, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in people maneuvering and taking. I'm interested in people earning and giving. You know what I'm saying? Well, I, it's just I, I, not, I, don't, I don't give a shit. But that's like when I've always told people Jake Paul is going to be a world champion. People like think about I'm saying Jake Paul is going to beat Alexander Usyk. And when I say that, I'm like, there will be a time where he gets himself contendership. 
and he's going to get a vacant world title shot and it's going to be a favorable matchup and he's going to win a belt because I just think, I think as, as boxing fans, as, as boxing fans, right. He, he's now he's, he's, he comes and he, and he's enough of a real fighter to do it on our terms a little bit more now, but he still does it from like the rich guy perspective. He's still doing it from the, well, okay. You know, I got everyone excited by by beating re- retired NBA players and and guys who stream on Twitch and other internet people, and then a prof- a wrestler who had a hip replacement, and you know whoever else he gets everybody all worked up about, right? And now when he goes to fight actual fighters, they're all guys that are obviously much smaller than him, and so it's like. I'm not saying it's the same thing, but it's part of why I can't get into Richard Torres where it's like, I know he's good. I know he's talented, but the, the matchups are so uncompelling to me that it's just, he, they're not, he's not doing what other fighters are doing. And I feel like with Jake, I just, we're coming to it from two different places. It's all good. It's just not my genre. The chat has two questions for you. Bipolar boxing picks wants to know, how do you feel about Jake putting Amanda as the main event for this card? It's awesome. It's fantastic. It was one of the things that I always had an issue with on on his part was having championship level fighters as his undercard when he was sort of a novice boxer. And I have a lot of respect for him doing that. They also um, ask Navarrete, though, Dakota, some maneuvering on his part. I'm not sure what he's referencing, but what do you feel about Navarrete and his ability to maneuver through the weight systems? I mean, what was he, 30-1 and one when he got his first title shot? I mean, that's that's silly, my boy. So when you're saying maneuvering, you're saying you're not as mad at when people play the politics game and maneuver their career. How many Twitch streamers did Emmanuel Navarrete fight? How many hip replacements did Navarrete have? No, but what I'm what I'm clarifying just for someone that's listening is if someone has a distinguished career earning their spot, coming up through club scene, fighting ranked fighters, and then getting there, you're not as hard on people when they do like, uh, Oh, we don't want to fight Golovkin because he looks like he's the guy in the division. We'll go to super middleweight or, David Benavidez this week seems like he's going to move up to light heavyweight because he's tired for waiting for Canelo. You're not as, you don't have as much issue with that because they've all created a distinguished career. And now they're kind of, that's the game of boxing. But when someone with a less distinguished career does that, you have a problem because you have to have there to do that. You feel you have to have earned a right in the sport to leverage that. I think that's a great way of putting it. I'm also just not interested in somebody who you, you take a, a bunch of top level fighters and he's on the card and he's probably the worst one, but it's ultimately about him. I'm just not interested. I'm not in, as interested in character driven boxing. And there's nothing about his skill set that makes me go, whoa, I got to see more of this fucking guy. Okay, last thing, and then we're out, is Canelo versus David Benavidez. It doesn't appear to be happening. David Benavidez, like I said before, is moving up in weight, it seems like, to take on Alexander Gavazdik, the nail. Um, what are your just general thoughts on this? Uh, I think it's super disappointing. I mean, I, it's un- unfortunate that I think Canelo is very much mirroring um, Mayweather at, at, this, at similar points in their careers, right? Um, there were fights 
there was the David Benavidez's of 2008 and 2009 and 2010 that we wanted to see Floyd in with, and he never really took those fights. He always took tough fights. He always took great opposition, but it was never the David Benavidez, the David Morrell of that moment. I'm not sure why that fight wouldn't happen, um, but it isn't. I think the fact that, you know, Canelo's going, who am I going to fight? And David Morrell and David Benavidez didn't have something lined up, but he was like, who am I, who am I going to fight? I don't love that. And I've always been somebody that's like, yo, I'll fuck with how Canelo maneuvers. You know, he's, he's always taking tough fights. He's taking risks. Um, but it is a weird one. I don't think that people can expect David to just sit around for his whole prime and wait for that fight to happen. And so he's moving up. He's taking a very challenging fight that will put him in the position to fight the undisputed light heavyweight champion. So I I, I love this move by Benavides. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's a big fat F you to Canelo. I think it's a, I'm not going to sit here and wait. If you're not going to fight me, I'm just going to make it. But I think he's just basically saying, like, okay, you're not going to fight me. I'm just moving up because the, the, I'm not going to just waste my career, make all these weight cuts to wait for a guy who just is not going to fight. We can say if he's nervous, we could say it's the politics. Benavidez, I think, is just tired. He's tired of – he's very adamantly said this is the fight he wants. He seems like he's trying to make the fight, and for whatever reason, the fight is not being made. And because of that, I think Benavidez deserves the opportunity to fight more interesting fights. And I know Bivol and Betterbiev will fight him. So I think for him, he sees his fight as that. And I think that for Canelo, and this is just my opinion, Canelo doesn't want to give Benavidez the chance to be the Mexican star off of his name. Because I think it's a 50-50 fight. I think it's closer than people think. But I think there's a leverage of Canelo's the face of boxing. And if Benavidez beats him, there's a chance Benavidez becomes the face of boxing. And I think there's a level of pride there with Canelo. And I also think we're getting into the territory with Canelo where it's like, is he going to spend the back part of his career like holding belts hostage and only taking fights that he feels are advantageous? Or is he going to be like a, a champion until he retires? We're going to go one last question because the chat threw it to us. I missed it earlier. Do you think Rohan Polanco is a good prospect? I think he is. I think this upcoming fight is going to explain where he stands. He beat Keith Hunter, who's a very good fighter. Uh, the guy's fighting is a great spoiler. It's a guy that has great feet. He's able to box a bit. He's very, very awkward. This is going to tell us where his power matches up. I think it might be an assessment for a fighter like Tiger Johnson because Tiger can move a lot. So I would be interested in comparing how he does against this fighter and then Really, when we come on next week, we might talk about, okay, so what would Tiger do if if Rohan fought? Because they're in the same weight classes. These weight classes need to be shaken up. And, um, I mean, I, I think he's a fine enough prospect, but I think he fits into the category of, like, my guy Charlie Sheehy. He's not coming in with the acclaim like the other guys, like the Andy Cruises, and he's not quite having the performances that go viral or – that do certain things where you go, Oh man, I can't wait. He's, he's occupying a space of that guy's pretty good. And in the modern era, that guy's pretty good is a guy that you forget to write about sometimes. So By the way, how great of a fight would Charlie Sheehy and Andy Cruz be? Holy shit. I mean, it would be amazing. Right. And, That's and I, but like, so Charlie's a great amateur, right? 
but Charlie didn't turn pro in a 10 round amateur fight and he's still growing. And most people, honestly, outside of the people that listen to our show and hardcore enthusiasts have never watched him fight unless you know him or you're a hardcore boxing fan. And when Charlie gets to be in front of a lot of people, he's going to have a lot of seasoning and a lot of grooming and a lot of experience. That's what makes Andy Cruz special to me is he just jumped into those moments without any of that. Yeah. Well, he did, he did it in the amateurs, but so did Charlie. So did Keyshawn Davis. Like he's, Cruz is moving faster than Keyshawn Davis, who's moving fast. I think that's the wisdom of turning pro a little older, too. I think also you're dealing with a guy who says, I can't get eight-round fights. No one in eight-round fights are going to fight me because they're going to ask for too much money. Right. Yeah. Like I think it's also a necessity. He needs the 10-round paycheck to get the guys to fight him. Yeah. Well, that is our show this week. Um, let's do the outro. Dakota, what can people expect from you this week, and what are you going to be doing? Uh, got some more Slipping Weaves coming out soon. Uh, month recap with me and Jack on the ITR Boxing website. Um, that's it for the moment, bro. I know I got other shit, but it's not coming to me right now. Appreciate everybody in the chat, though. Yeah, great chat. Hopefully next week we're going to have even a better chat. And uh, look forward to more stuff coming soon. Peace, guys.